Our solar system, in many ways, represents the culmination of 13.8 billion years of cosmic evolution. It took over 9 billion years of stars living and dying, proto-galaxies merging together, and individual star systems being born, going through their life cycles, and dying before our sun Earth and the rest of our solar system came into existence. Here, some 4.6 billion years after that event, we have our sun, four inner rocky worlds, the asteroid belt, and then the gas giant worlds with their moons orbiting them. Yet beyond that lies the Kuiper belt, the scattered disk, and even the Oort cloud beyond that. The outer solar system is one of the least evolved places that we can look in our own cosmic backyard. What is it like out there, and what can that teach us about where we came from? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. It's only these days in the 21st century that we're beginning to discover the outer solar system and to understand what it's like and how it came to be in its present state. There are debates and arguments over just what might be the full suite of what's out there. And today, I'm so excited to have an astrophysicist, Michelle Bannister, on the Starts With a Bang podcast to teach us more about it. Michelle? Welcome to the Starts With a Bang podcast, and it's my pleasure to have you on here. Thank you. Yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar with Michelle, she is a scientist at Queen's University Belfast and a scientific expert on the outer solar system. Michelle, when it comes to the formation history of the solar system and how it came to be in its present state, what do you think are some important things that most people might not know? I think my favourite thing about trying to understand the formation and evolution of the solar system has been the major finding that the solar system as we see it today is not the way that it once was. Solar systems change. Planetary systems evolve. They don't stay the same through time. So is this really a complex way of saying that when we look at the solar system today, all we see are the survivors and we don't see all the things that didn't make it to the present day. We don't see the in-situ objects that were once in the Kuiper belt that have been thrust into the inner solar system and either ejected, thrown into the sun, or captured by other planets. Well, what we see is a very complex picture. That initial disk of protoplanet that was surrounding the initial planets, once the gas and dust of that disk is formed into protoplanets, you have a lot of these objects. You have trillions on trillions of them. And the conservation of angular momentum means as the little gravity of each of those exerts its force on the planets and the, and the growing planets exert their force back on all the little sea of, of protoplanetesimals, things get scattered around and the big planets migrate. They move from their initial formation orbits toward the star, so depending on how they interact, they can also move away from the star. 
And you get a very complex situation where the initial emplacement of some of the populations that we see today, some of it happens somewhat smoothly, and some of it is potentially very, almost episodic. It happens you know, on the scale of solar system things. It can happen sometimes in you know, only tens or so of orbits. So some of these things are very dramatic. A lot of these events take place over tens of millions of years. Interesting. So is it is it sort of like the solar system is maybe in some ways a scaled up version of what we see going on in Saturn's rings where you have all these tiny particles moving at slightly different speeds relative to one another, colliding with each other, merging together, smashing into each other, flying apart um, with these, you know, in Saturn's rings, we have these little moons and moonlets that uh, can be created and can either last a long time or can collide with other things and destroy themselves? Yeah, I mean, to Saturn's rings is a, like, it's a good visual analogy in some ways, but it's only made entirely of ice, which is a little bit different. Honestly, the way I tend to visualize this kind of disc is think of a plate and cover it with bubble tea. Basically, you're talking about a zero-G version of a plate of bubble tea. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Except so the, the plate particles. has to be spinning, right? And it's spinning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, you have these uh, forming little bodies. This is, you know, they've overcome the scale of a couple of meters or so up to the scale of kilometers and things. And the gas and dust, they're still kind of in a colloidal, what, what's sometimes called a colloidal suspension. And the initial dust, when it's interacting with the gas like that, a, a, a very typical colloidal suspension that you get is milk, right? Okay. You, you, have, you have particles suspended in a fluid. So in that sense, that's kind of why I use an analogy like bubble tea, where you have something where you have even larger particles starting to form in a solution. And it's, it's a nice visual metaphor for what's happening in the initial disk. But then you have migration taking place and you have some complexities going on where the stuff that's closest to the initial star will lose some of the materials that are easily driven off in, hot, in hotter temperatures. So there'll be lines throughout the disk where you have some uh, materials like water ice can no longer survive and then you get dry asteroids and then further out from that other volatiles can no longer um, stay around and so you get lines throughout the disk of materials that are somewhat unfamiliar in a everyday context as being you know liquids or, or uh, sorry as being um, solids but in this context they're basically the cleaning chemicals that you get in your kitchen cupboard your methane ammonia carbon monoxide right but things they, that are, they, that they are easily boiled off yeah and, and in the outer disk they fall a lot of these planetesimals so, so it's ices but sometimes not as you think of them so that's that's pretty interesting, right? Because if I were to if I were to imagine, you know, oh, what what would a tiny early solar system, you know, if I were to look at where these different lines are, I would imagine that well, if you're too close to the sun, you'll just you know vaporize everything, and you'll have what I think we call a soot line. That inside of that, everything is just burned, and then and then beyond that, you can you know you can form rocky objects, objects with a metallic core, very massive objects can maybe even hold on to hydrogen and helium. And then as you go outer and outer and outer from there, you're going to run into what you referred to as the frost line, which is sort of the border between water ice and not being able to have water ice, where you would sublimate it into a gas phase or where you'd have it in the solid phase. And maybe for our solar system, 
that border corresponds to where perhaps the asteroid belt is. And then well, you... um, you've got to be careful with that because where that line is today, the, the sun was not the temperature it is today when this was happening. Right, right, because the sun is warmed over time. So are you saying that where we initially had our frost line, um, now that's not the frost line. The frost line has actually migrated outwards. Yeah, it moves around a little. I mean, like this is one of the things is when you're going, what does the initial setup look like versus what does the setup look today? You're looking at something that has changed in a, in a wide range of the effects that are taking place to some of these objects. And where we see them today, because of the effects of migration, of planetary migration, is not where they started. So it's picking out the ones that could be where they started today based on the shapes of their of their current orbits and working with the populations that have been moved around of the remaining small bodies so, to try and piece together a version of this history. So we don't know, for example, what early planets may have existed in the inner part of the solar system, whether there were, you know, ice giants or gas giants in the inner part of the solar system or planets larger than Earth predating Earth that were eaten by the sun or ejected. We don't know whether there were always four gas giants or whether there were five or even more, and we don't know how much they've moved around. All we know is what we have today, and the rest is something we have to infer based on... Yeah. And trying to understand, it's tricky to obtain a unique history in this sense. We can say what might be a most probable history. So we can try running a number of simulations and with, say, start with five planets, uh, five giant planets, start with four giant planets, and this particular mass of planetesimals in the disk, start with a range of um, terrestrial planets. And you try out this, you know, these ensembles of possible starting systems and try simulating them through to the present day and then see the outcome of that simulation if it matches what we have in the present day solar system and like that's a pretty broad brush approach but you know it is important to remember from that that you don't get a unique history we can't tell a distinct history in that sense we can tell a most probable history yeah, I think that I think that's a very good reminder, and and thank you for for making us all aware of that because it's very easy to look at where we are today and to want to draw a straight line from well we must have started like this because all stars start like this and we wound up here and we want to draw a straight line but I mean it's certainly very tempting but it's important to remember that the solar system is such a complicated chaotic system that we can say well if you start with um, you know, this particular setup of four planets, you arrive, four giant planets, you arrive at something that looks like our solar system only one time in a million in our simulations. But if you start with something with five giant planets, you wind up with something that looks like our solar system 30% of the time, then you would say like, oh, the five planet thing is far more likely than the four planet thing. But that doesn't tell you that our system necessarily started with five. It just tells you what we think is most likely based on what we have today and the simulations that we chose to begin with various initial conditions. Yeah, I mean, you can rule out, uh, you can rule out some things, right? Like, I don't think anyone's arguing that we ever had a hot Jupiter in the system. But, <laughs> like, okay. but there might be um, things where you can also argue 
the, the way in which the terrestrial planets were configured could be quite different at different times. So, you know, there's, there's some possibilities you can rule out, but and there are definitely some events that seem more, more likely to have happened than others to produce things like the asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt. There's, there's definitely some aspects of uh, planetary migration that need to take place to produce the uh, observed populations we see. So you brought up the Kuiper Belt. Let's let's start talking about that. When we go out beyond Neptune, um, I think a lot of people don't realize how recently it is we've learned really anything meaningful about what's out there. You know, we discovered Pluto uh, some almost ninety years ago now. Um, since yeah, so Pl so Pluto, Pluto was discovered uh, um, in uh, Tom Bell's survey, and the, the like. One of the things that I like about Tom Bell's survey is he he lived at a fortunate point in time so if you imagine that tombaugh was with with his um, you know telescope as he had it then was instead working today and looking at the sky as it looks today his survey would not have been able to see pluto because at this point in time pluto sits in front of the galactic plane and he wouldn't have, would not have been able to survey that because the way he found things was by taking a picture of the sky coming back sometime later and taking another picture of the sky and then blinking between the two images going back and forth to see what things were stationary, the stars, and if anything had moved. And so at that time, Pluto was in front of the galaxy. He couldn't have found it. So in that sense, he lived at a fortunate configuration of the solar system where Pluto was visible for him to find. And it is the brightest one. It is the, you know, the brightest large trans-Neptunian object that we have. And so it wasn't until uh, the, like in the 70s, Charles Kowal started trying to look for, again, with photographic plates, the other moving objects. He found uh, the population, the first of a population that would be described as centaurs, which orbit between the giant planets um, for timescales of a few tens of millions of years and are then scattered out in a way. Yeah, so it wasn't until 1992 when uh, Jane Lu and Dave Jewett were surveying was the, the new, brand new, shiny digital detectors that they picked up the second Kuiper Belt object, which is now named Albion, if I remember rightly. And 1992 QB1 or Albion was, in many ways, that was the revolution. That was when people went, oh, there's quite a lot of things out here. And it wasn't as though people hadn't suspected that was the case. There's lovely papers in the 80s uh, where people were looking at the dynamics of how the planets had to migrate under the effect of living in a disk with planetesimals, that these, migration, that these migratory effects had to take place. So in that sense, people um, like Renu Maholtra had been looking at the orbit of Pluto. Now, Pluto's orbit, you know, it's inclined. It's in a resonance with uh, the planet Neptune, the outermost giant planet. And resonant orbits are a tiny, tiny fraction of phase space, of, of the possible um, shapes and sizes that orbits can have the, of phase space. Right. And so when we look, for example, at the outer planets we have today, it's not really a coincidence that Jupiter orbits at about 5 AU from the Sun, and Saturn orbits at about 10 AU from the Sun, and Uranus is about 20, and Neptune is about 30. This this isn't coincidence. There's there's a resonance that describes that as well, isn't there? Uh, you have to be a little careful with that. So, yeah, <laughs> um, we're, we're not quite going with the... Um 
the exact multiples on on that. That that's a, um, an idea that's been floated around for a while in some ways, but. There are resonant effects that take place potentially throughout solar system history, in the early part of solar system history when the planets are migrating. And this is uh, the version of this that has been worked through a lot. It's often known as the Nice model, where you have giant planets reaching resonant configurations with each other as they're nudged around by the planetesimal state, reach resonant configurations. And that excites the orbits of other giant planets such that they're able to basically pop and push it, push out into a new orbit in a relatively dramatic fashion. The Nice model is known for its dramatic changes in orbits. Interesting, interesting. I had uh, I had read about the Nice model as you know as being sort of this revolutionary thing that when it was first proposed that it sort of cleared up a lot of mysteries, and so I had thought it was this uh, this generally accepted model of how our solar system and maybe most solar systems tended to form. But the way you're presenting it, it sounds like this is uh, this is just one model among many and doesn't necessarily um, detail the history of our or any solar system in particular? Well, it's a specific case of planetary migration. And planetary, the, the general process, planetary migration, clearly takes place in systems all, you know, every, everywhere that we see them, right? The existence of things like hot Jupiters, they've, they've had to migrate into where they currently are today. The um, architecture, as we call it, the way in which the planets are arranged in systems, like that's a clear signature that, um, like the Trappist-1 system is a lovely example of a resonant chain where planet after planet after planet after planet are all locked in orbital resonances with each other. In this case of resonances, where is it? this is um, the type of what's called mean motion resonance where you have uh, the planets are going around in integer ratios with each other. So they're kind of doing a dance step where you know, one is making one orbit, the other one's making two orbits. Oh, sorry, uh, the inner one's making two orbits, the outer one's making a single orbit. So that's, you know, you've got a two-to-one resonance going on. And you see this in our in our solar system. You see it um, in a couple of places. Uh, the Kirkwood gaps are um, examples of resonances where you have these little slices in the asteroid belt where, um, in this case, Jupiter's gravity prevents asteroids from orbiting. They are dynamically cleared out if they tried to exist on orbits there. But exterior to Neptune, you instead have many, many, you have this whole filigree of very detailed resonances, and it's not just two to one, three to two, for, uh, three to two is the uh, ones that Pluto is an example of. Uh, you go right further out. We, we currently know of resonances existing out as far as 150 astronomical units. And that's really interesting. So let's let's talk about what lies beyond Neptune out there. We um we know I think one of the things that that really surprised me when I realized it and now now it seems obvious is that when one object if I if I took an object like Pluto and then I made an imaginary, you know, identical Pluto that was twice as far away from the sun, your initial, you know, reaction is, oh, it should be only a quarter as bright. But in actuality, it's going to be one sixteenth as bright because the sunlight that hits Pluto versus what hits Pluto if it would be twice as far away, only a quarter of that sunlight is even hitting the more distant object. And then 
that light is getting reflected has to come all the way back to your eyes. So that's another factor of a quarter that it goes down by. So something that's farther away, its brightness actually goes down as 1 over r to the fourth, not 1 over r squared like you'd expect. So it's kind of remarkable at all that we're finding objects and, and hundreds of objects that are out there that are smaller and in many cases more distant than Pluto to discover some of these resonances. Yep, these things are small, faint, and far away. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it makes it incredibly challenging to detect and to track and uh, map out where they, where they exist and what their orbits are. And you've, you've talked to me before about how if you want to actually know the orbit of these objects, it's not enough to do, for example, what Tombaugh did and get a couple of observations a few days apart of this same object. You actually, you were telling me, you need years of observations to understand exactly what this orbit is doing. Yeah, so the Kuiper Belt um, orbits there are a little easier to deal with. So Pluto was, you know, it's a nice and close in that sense. It's only kind of 30 to 40 astronomical units out. So 30 to 40 times the distance from Earth to the Sun with that inverse to the force problem kicking in all the time. And the rest of the Kuiper Belt, um, even even the resonant ones, are on relatively uh, tractable orbits to, to see as long as you have a large telescope, where large is like a four-meter class telescope. And that can look at a large area of sky, so many tens of square degrees of sky. But if you're trying to do something where the shape of the orbit is quite different from this, instead of being uh, relatively nice and round and flat or being a slightly stretched ellipse and it's tilted a little bit, if you instead have a really, really, really elongated ellipse, so in eccentricity to these orbits where you're getting up to 0 0.7, 0 0.9, these become much more challenging to define the shape of their orbit from just a, a few ha from a, just a handful of observations. Normally when I think of the Kuiper Belt object the first thing that comes to my mind is something like these long period comets which appear to have their origin in the Kuiper Belt but over time and most likely due to gravitational perturbations interactions with Neptune and perhaps other objects um, these objects that were once stably out there far beyond Neptune now take the plunge into our inner solar system, and that's one way to get very eccentric. But it can also go out the other way with an object like, say, Sedna that we discovered, you know, I guess over 10 years ago now, um, where it might be approximately at the distance of Pluto right now, but when it's at aphelion, when it's at its farthest distance from the sun, we're talking about something that's hundreds, or in some cases, maybe even thousands of AU away. Yeah, so Saturn never gets closer than about 80 AU, just to be clear. Um, okay. Yeah, <laughs> a bit further out. When we think about the theoretical solar system, and maybe this is a little naive of me, I think that as you go beyond Neptune, you should run into the Kuiper Belt, and then that's, that's sort of, you know, I think of that similar to the asteroid belt, maybe a little more diffuse, but, but similar to that, that you're going to have these few resonances that are defined by the gravitational influence of everything else, um, where you have, you know, certain categories of places where you're more likely to have objects and other places where you're less likely to have them. You'll have the scattered disk, 
which can go far beyond where I think the traditional Kuiper belt is and also will have a wider spread in terms of how far out of the ecliptic plane is it going to be. And then yeah, so, so, so you have the Oort clouds. Well, so you have a set of the Kuiper belt, which is in between about 37 and uh, the and about 50 astronomical units. And some of these objects are going to be on very low eccentricity, very low inclination orbits. So their orbits are basically round and flat. And this, um, these uh, cold classicals, as they're known, these cold classical Kuiper belt objects are probably the original part of the Kuiper belt. They're the ones that potentially didn't get moved very much at all by migration, by the outward migration of Neptune. Then you have about a fifth of the population of the Kuiper belt that's in these resonances, so that is distributed um, in much more eccentric and often quite inclined orbits. And they're part of um, what are generally grouped together with the dynamically excited um, trans-Neptunian objects, where that in, which also includes the scattering disk, as you said, or, and the um, highly inclined parts of the classical Kuiper belt. And all of this, the inclinations are only going up to about 30, 40 degrees or so. They're not, like, they're tilted. They're quite tilted relative to the plane of the Kuiper belt, as to the plane of the solar system, certainly relative to the inclinations of any of the planets. But we're also not finding very many objects that are, say, inclined at the same level that perhaps the Milky Way galaxy is inclined to the solar system, that you're really only getting to this 30 or 40 degree mark, not up to like 60 or, or more azimuthal degrees. Yeah, though that particular um, tilt doesn't have anything to do with this particular tilt, but yeah. <laughs> it's, a, um, it's one of those things where the outward migration of Neptune emplaces a lot of these uh, uh, d dynamically excited of these tilted um, high eccentricity orbits. But once you get beyond the um, the Kuiper belt, as, as it's more formally thought of, into, you have a population which are even stranger. And this is sometimes talked about as being the detached disk. So resonances allow you to have a perihelion a little bit outside of Neptune's orbit. But you're still coming pretty close to Neptune. You're doing, each of these little worlds is doing a dance where it carefully avoids Neptune at perihelion. Never gets too close, so it's protected. It can't be scattered out. The scattered disk objects at perihelion, at closest approach to the sun, are coming in, and they can get biffed by Neptune. They can get knocked around. They get gravitationally scattered on timescales of the lifetime of the solar system, and they go away. They're after many fewer scattering disk objects now than there were when the solar system uh, was in its early history. It's a decaying population. But there's a mysterious one, and that's these objects with orbits where their perihelia are substantially outside of Neptune. Interesting. So so just, just so everyone who's listening is clear, uh, when you say these really bizarre objects, what you're talking about is these are objects that when they get close to the sun, the closest they ever get to the sun, they're still extremely far from Neptune. They're still, you know, 20 plus astronomical units, maybe even many more than that astronomical units away from Neptune. So we could say reasonably, we can't really think of a, a way that Neptune or any of the planets in the solar system could have been gravitationally responsible for causing the bizarreness of these orbits. And yet we see these objects with, you know, t when when you say bizarre orbits, I'm thinking, well, they're, they're probably going to be 
they could be circular, but they're likely to be quite eccentric, and they're likely to be as far out of the solar system's plane as you want, and yet we don't know of any gravitational cause of what could have been out there, at least as far as what's already been discovered. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to get a way to form them out there because you have the material of the disk is starting to um, drop off in intensity, and we see a very sharp um, drop off in the number of objects at the edge of the Kuiper belt at that what's sometimes termed the, cliff, the Kuiper cliff at fifty astronomical units. But these are you know a reasonably numerous population, lower in density than the main Kuiper belt, but they orbit outside it. So, it, how do they get there? <laughs> like, you know, what forms the detached disk? And, like, this has been a, like, I think since probably the early 90s and the first one or two of these started showing up in um, discovery surveys. Has, this has been something people have been actively throwing theoretical ideas at, how to form the detached disk. And that's interesting because the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud, they go back to the mid-20th century as far as when people were theorizing about them and were talking about their predictions. But the detached disk, that was a surprise. People weren't predicting that in advance of when these objects began to be discovered, were they? Yeah, Julio Fernandez uh, um, predicted that there would need to be a belt of objects to source the short-period comets uh, and the, Ju the Jupiter family comets. Um, which we now call the Kuiper Belt and the, and the scattering disk, and so there was, and that was you know in the 80s, people were talking about where these things that we see in the more inner parts of the solar system would need to be coming from. But yeah, it's this like this is fun. This is always a good sign of of an interesting problem to have in a field is when you have a an observed population that you need quite a lot of different ideas to be able to explain. You don't make this detached disk through my through migration of Neptune. And that's and that's really interesting in and of itself that we have these objects. Now now recently, as in just over the last few years, um, people have been pointing to a small selection of these objects and have been sort of talking about how Boy, they seem to have these weird orbital properties that appear to be clustered or related in some sort of way. And could that be evidence that somewhere far beyond Neptune, beyond what, what we've been able to detect, not just, you know, tens of AU away, not, not you know, up to 50 AU where the Kuiper belt you know, where that Kuiper cliff is, um, but maybe hundreds of astronomical units away from Earth, maybe there is a planet out there more massive than Earth, maybe less massive than Neptune, that could be gravitationally perturbing some of these objects. Yeah, and I mean, this is an idea that has been kicking around the community ever since the discovery of Sedna, the um, object with an closest approach to the sun of about 80 astronomical units and a mean distance from the sun of around 900. So Sedna has a really interesting orbit. It's way out beyond Neptune. So it's it's exceptionally detached in that sense. Sometimes it's termed an inner or cloud object because it's almost halfway to where you might be thinking that the comets start to, um, to be a population. But it... It's isolated. It's inside the distance at which the tide of the galaxy itself starts to pull on the orbits of objects and change their shapes. 
the tide of the galaxy itself nudges the Oort cloud itself around. Um, it's one of the things that supplies us with comets from out at 50,000 astronomical units uh, on a regular basis. But this is much closer. It's it doesn't go out that it doesn't go out nearly far enough, but it doesn't come in close enough. So maybe you need a planet to be able to haul it out there and put it in place. Maybe you need a flyby of a star in the sun's uh, birth cluster of stars, or at some point when the sun has been orbiting the galaxy over the last four and a half billion years. Right, well, and maybe we know, you need something else. Yeah. We know we get these close approaches of stars, you know, close approaches where I'll say a star maybe comes within the proximity of the Oort cloud every few hundred thousand to few millions of years. So that seems like, like a reasonable potential cause of that. But of course, we have no way of knowing what came by, what influenced what in the past. But if you start to see many objects that have these not only Sedna-like orbits, but seem to be related, where there's some sort of pattern in them, um, wouldn't you maybe conclude that there was something periodic occurring? Yeah, so you have uh, um, the, the flyby of a star will leave an imprint in the trans in the these detached trans-Neptunian objects. or kind of splay them out like a fan depending on the angle it goes past the solar system and how close you'll get very distinctive uh, um, kind of fan splays of objects being yanked outwards and frozen into place. So ideally, if you had enough objects, you could match them up and say, hey, this is how far a star went, went by and uh, how massive the star was and <laughs> how long ago it happened, that kind of thing. And you could match it to that kind of idea. And But this is a problem with... Uh, that's got a lot of parameters that you can tweak, and anything with a lot of free parameters means you can potentially fit quite a lot of things. So it's hard to uniquely say that there was a stellar flyby. And most of the problems mean we still only have a handful of the largest of these orbits. Sedna was discovered in 2004, and it wasn't until 2013, 2014 that we started getting the next one of these objects uh, where Shepard and Trujillo uh, announced um, 2012 VP113, which has a very similar orbit, um, a little a little shorter, a little squat, a little more squat. It's a um, similar similar distance of close approach to the sun. It's around 76 AU, uh, but the size of its uh, mean distance from the sun is quite a lot smaller. It's more like 300 or so. And and again, we're still limited by what we can detect given the telescope coverage we have and the depth of coverage we have and the brightness of these objects. So we, we're we pretty certain, as far as I understand it, that whatever we're detecting are inherently biased in a number of ways. We're biased towards the brightest objects. We're biased towards the closest objects. We're biased towards the largest objects out there. So we can't be certain that what we're actually detecting is a good representation of what's out there. When, yeah, we, we have a lot of challenges with this kind of work. You need, these objects are so faint that you need a big telescope. And so a big telescope lives at a particular location on the Earth, and that particular location will have its own weather patterns and its own characteristic uh, what's called limiting magnitude, the faintest magnitude that you can reliably see to when you take an image. And you have to take an image and come back and take another image and see what's changed in between. In that sense, you know, the basic principle of finding these things has not changed from when Clyde Tombaugh did it. 
I want to bring something up that that I know we've talked about privately before this, but when we talk about biases, it's not just a bias towards like the brightest objects, which is like a Malmquist bias. There's also something called detection bias, which is, for example, you know, I live, I live here in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. If I were to set up an observatory here, I might have very good, reliable observing for a few months, the summer months out of the year. So there might be really good locations on the sky that I could make observations um, during those times. But I'm not getting all sky coverage because a large part of the sky is really going to be better visible during some of the months where it's cloudy all of the time. So if I'm only looking at specific times of the year, that means I'm only looking at specific locations in the sky. And perhaps if I could see all of the sky at the same depth, um, I would actually get an accurate picture of what's going on. But if I'm limited in where I'm able to look, then I may be detecting objects that are biased in a particular fashion, and I may be drawing false conclusions about what's actually out there because I'm artificially limiting myself due to Earth's weather at my present location about what I'm actually seeing. The act of having to, the act of observing the universe puts limits on what you can say about the universe. It's, and this is, this is not in know, some quantum mechanical sense. No, it's just, you know, you, you have to observe the universe somehow. You have a telescope. You have a location on the Earth at which to observe from. It's, uh, you know, where you are in the Pacific Northwest, you can't see the Southern Cross. Like, you can't see the Southern Hemisphere sky, right? <laughs> I sure can't. <laughs> And, you know, even if you could lie your telescope, you know, the planet gets in the way. So, that, you know, that's, that, in that sense, that's when term, terms of talking about it as a bias, that's you are limited by the, the constraints of having to exist in the universe and observe the universe. And if you, you know, going through each of the factors that you can have with detecting these objects and going through them very thoroughly and saying, okay, this is the effect living in the Pacific Northwest has. This is the effect, the fact I can't see half the sky has. <laughs> you know, you, you factor all of these things up. And then you also take into account that these objects uh, vary in size. So you have, if you think of it like whales in the sea, you have few big whales and you have very many tiny fish. So this popular, and that's a size distribution of things that live in the ocean. And you have few big ones, many small ones. Trans-Neptunian objects also have a size distribution. And it's also, again, a steep size distribution. We know this from uh, observing the Kuiper Belt in uh, great detail. It's an incredibly steep size distribution. So there's very, very few large objects, you know, Pluto Eris sized objects, but there's comparatively many, many, many small objects. I had read something recently that we believe we've discovered over 90% of the largest objects that should exist in the Kuiper belt, you know, with, with perihelia within that 50, 50 AU range. Is that, is yeah, that the as you the understand it as pretty well? good. Yeah, the surfing's pretty good for, um, to, Anywhere down to about 21st magnitude, we have pretty complete sky coverage at this point. So I'm happy unless there's something that's been hiding in the galaxy, and we've also been looking at the sky long enough that that would have moved out of the galaxy by now. Um, yeah, I think we're getting a pretty good handle on the, the bright and thus larger in 
of the trans-Neptunian objects. But the mid-size and smaller ones, we how are we doing on those? Well, it's uh, for any given patch of sky, the deeper, the, the fainter that you're able to look, the more objects you will see. And because of the steep size distribution, if you can get half a magnitude fainter, suddenly a whole lot more will pop out to you. So it's really, really magnitude limited for being able to understand this population. But for each one, you know, I keep talking a lot about the solar system changing through time. We don't get the luxury of seeing that change happen in our own human lifespans. We see the solar system basically as a frozen snapshot. So we're looking at this thing that we don't see change in. We don't see these objects moving on their orbits because some of these take 20,000 years or 40,000 years to orbit the sun. So instead, we're trying to understand how these things can change through time, what configuration they currently have from just the ones that are visible to our telescopes. And so for every one of these objects that we can pick up with our telescope, that it's bright enough to be detected, there have to also be tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, and in some cases for these populations, hundreds of thousands that are on parts of their orbits where they're currently too faint to see. So if we want to remedy this gap, then really the only way to do that is to vastly increase the limiting magnitude of what we can survey. And when you talk about what we can survey, if we want to really know what's out there, we have to go either all sky or at least to a large portion of the sky in order to make sure that we're not succumbing to the same biases that we know we're at risk of succumbing to today. Get a bigger telescope. <laughs> and it's telescope. like, get a bigger telescope that can look at a larger area of sky. Because this is the thing, right? You know, people go, Hubble is amazing. And it is wonderful. But it can look at a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a square degree at a given time. Yeah, so, I think the uh, extreme deep field, which is our biggest view of the universe ever, um, is one thirty-two millionth of the sky. And that's already stitched up of multiple Hubble images. Yeah. <laughs> In uh, contrast, there's a... like one bright trans-Neptunian object per square degree. So, <laughs> right. so if you're and going to map out the shape of, the, uh, of these orbits in space, you need to, something like an eight-meter telescope and you need to look at thousands of square degrees of sky. Or you need to very, very carefully calibrate that you can look at a smaller area of sky and say what the detection biases are that went into collecting the sample that you found in that square that little little patch of sky right so when you were talking about like this 21st magnitude study like that that i assume is something like pan stars which can grab like three quarters of the sky because it's it's located pretty close to the equator to an equatorial latitude um and it has very good seeing where it's located so it can get yeah, exactly. all the objects in the sky down to say you said 21st magnitude, which is, you know, which is pretty substantial. Our eyes, our naked eyes can only get down to 6th magnitude. But Hubble at its deepest gets to around 30th magnitude. So we know that we have a whole lot more universe to see, even here in our own solar system, than what we viewed all sky. And so oh, yeah. 
whether you're talking about a survey like uh, what Trujillo and Shepard have done, where they, they look at these narrow regions of the sky and they pick out objects, certainly there has to be a bias to what they're looking at based on when they're looking, how they're looking, and with the equipment that they have. Now, you work with a survey called OSOS, which I believe stands for the Outer Solar System Origin Survey. Um, and that has taught us something um, that seems, from what you've told me, it seems to not necessarily lead you to the same conclusions that the Trujillo and Shepard work might lead you to. Yeah, so we built OSIS as, uh, so that was a survey that ran for five years and finished uh, in December last year uh, on the Canada-France Hawaii telescope on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And we built that as a tool that would let you create a sample of trans-Neptunian objects with very, very precise orbits, because we're tracking them over a number of years and calibrating them, uh, calibrating their astrometry very precisely, and put a great deal of effort into understanding the detection biases that went into finding them. So down to particular limiting magnitudes, in our case, about between about 24.2 and about 25.2, over about 155 square degrees of sky in big patches uh, spread throughout the year, we were able to detect uh, about a 840 or so trans-Neptunian objects where we know what the biases were that went into, into collecting them, and we have very precise measures of their orbits. So this sample and the software that encodes what the biases were that were used to detect them, we, we made that as a tool that allows you to say, okay, if you do a, a migration of Neptune and it scatters little planets, uh, little minor planets into the outer solar system in a particular way, how does that model match up against the discovered sample that we had? Well, you take your, your model and you throw it through the survey simulator through the software that says, hey, this is how the telescope looked at the sky and this is how sensitive it was and how sensitive the software was to finding things. And then you compare that biased outcome against the true detections. Interesting. So that's, that seems like a really robust setup, even though as, as impressive as 155 square degrees is, that's still only about 0.3% of the entire sky. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a four-meter telescope with a square-degree imager. It's uh, you know, a state-of-the-art tool for being able to look at the sky for hundreds of hours and be able to track down these orbits precisely without losing any of them at trans-Neptunian distances. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big sky. It's a really big sky. <laughs> like, that's the thing, right? We threw hundreds of hours of telescope resource at... Uh, you know, which is a project funded by several different countries in order to be able to answer this question of how did Neptune migrate, which is what we built this to test. But again, we're looking at 0.3 square degrees of the sky. There's a limitation to what you can do even with the best tech we have available. And that kind of gives you an idea of the scope of this problem. If you're trying to understand the even more distant solar system, the things at the distance of Sedna, you know, Sedna's big, Sedna's quite a large dwarf planet. But that means there must be many, many much smaller dwarf, uh, smaller objects that orbit on orbits like it, but they become much, much harder to see. Let's talk about those classes of objects, these, uh, these setnoid-type objects. Um, that, as I understand it, is a huge part of why 
uh, Mike Brown and Constantine Badigan first theorized that this ninth planet might exist, that there might be a massive world more massive than Earth beyond Neptune, is because they were looking at the orbits of of these setnoids, of these classes of objects, and they well, said, that was, hey... That, that was first proposed by Trujillo and Shepard in 2014, and then Mike and Constantine uh, picked up on the concept and worked with it further theoretically in 2016. Thank you for making sure we give the right people the right credit for this. So, Chad and, and, and Shepard is Scott, right? Yes. So, Chad and Scott, and then Constantine and Mike... Um, you know, have this idea that, well, when we look at these sednoids, um, we see that their orbits appear to be related in some way that's consistent with them all being caused by the orbit of this theoretical massive planet that would be, you know, perhaps 200 astronomical units away from us. But according to the data from OSOS, it seems like there may also be other sednoids out there that don't fit this picture at all. Yeah, so this is um, this is an idea that the roots of it go back to 2004 and the discovery of Sedna, at which point, you know, Mike and a, and a number of other people worked with the idea of there being a distant planet in the solar system. And the fun idea was, do we have a current planet or do we have a a rogue planet that arrived at one point, scattered in the outer solar system, and was then thrown itself out of the outer solar system. You know, t hearkening back to what you were saying about us potentially having five ice, you know, giant planets at one point and then losing one of them. And then this idea kind of, you know, it sat quiet for a while, and then when we got BP113, it was like, okay, now we have two Sedna-class objects. Let's start thinking about this more. And Trujillo and Shepard started working more with the detached, the large semi-major axis detached population. So the detached population, because of the discovery bias that you can see the things that are closer much, much more accurately. Uh, sorry, you, you can detect the things that are closer much, much more easily because they become bright enough to see. We okay. know more about the population of objects that have perihelia between 40 and 50 astronomical units. And the detection biases, you'll see more of those than you will the things out at 70 and 80 astronomical units. So when you, when you talk about these, these biases, right, you, what you're saying is we, we can see the ones that come in close. And of course you can because they're, they're brighter. Um, but it seems like when you, when you talk about bias, one of the things that seems different about Osos from the sample of Trujillo and Shepard is Trujillo and Shepard's sample seems to be biased in, in space, in terms of the time of year we're looking, in terms of the region of the sky that we're capable of looking in. And your sample, the Osos study, um, appears to be operating with a with a very different set of biases than than the Trujillo and Shepard samples. Yeah, I mean, this is a thing is that every survey will have its own set of biases and how it was able to observe the universe and what sample it was able to collect of the trans-Neptunian population. And some of this comes down to how you design your survey, what you're trying to accomplish with that survey. Because, you know, you propose to a telescope and the committee of people who... Um, allocate the time for the telescope, say, what question are you going to answer with the time we'd like to give you? And you go, 
okay, this is how I'm phrasing my question. This is how I'm shaping my question so that it will be able to be answered well by collecting these data. So Trujillo and Shepard were designing their survey here. Uh, to accomplish a very different question. They wanted to look specifically at the center population. And the problem is, there's a lot of asteroids in the way, and there's a lot of Kuiper Belt in the way. <laughs> so okay. you, have to, you have to choose. Are you going to do a complete sample and try and catch everything in a particular piece of sky? Or are you just going to go after one class of object and try and understand those? The thing that Ossus did was... Uh, uh, you know, in uh, it, Ossus was looking at trying to do a complete sample of the of the Kuiper Belt and the and that region in there. It's a four meter telescope, so we could detect out to you know uh, a couple hundred AU or so if something was really big. But we're really focusing on trying to understand the Kuiper Belt and the uh, region out to about a hundred AU. In contrast, Trujillo and Shepard went. We can't track everything. We're, we're using an even bigger telescope, but if we track all of the Kuiper Belt, we'll have no time to find the needle in the haystack objects like Sedna's that we actually really care about for answering our question. So they designed their survey so they would only track and follow up the objects that were detected at distances from the sun beyond 50 AU. So what you're saying is they went and they restricted their survey to saying we're only going to look at objects that that are beyond this certain distance which means that they should move by no more than a certain amount right because uh because relative motion is going to change sort of parallax style and also through transverse motion depending on how far away it is from the sun so so by doing a, a certain, I guess, cut on your data, you can say, okay, I'm going to restrict myself to objects that are within our solar system but have moved by less than a specific amount. And that way you get, you know, objects greater than a certain number of AU from the sun, as opposed to what Ossos did, which is to say, well, we're interested in the Kuiper belt, so we may see some Sednoid class objects, but they're going to be the ones that that tend to be within that 50 AU of the sun? Yeah, uh, I think our most distant detection was out of 83 AU, heliocentric distance. So okay. you, you get very much that idea. We, were, we have a sample, and I think that the interesting difference between the sample that we've been able to collect and the one that Shepard and Trujillo are collecting, I mentioned a little earlier that most of the detached objects with the large semi-major axes that have been found have perihelia between 40 and 50 AU. Yeah, so with the ELSA sample, we had nine trans-Neptunian objects with perihelia outside Neptune and semi-major axis greater than 150 AU. Eight of those nine um, are detached objects, they're like completely, um, they're, they're not perturbed by Neptune um, in a major way over the lifetime, over, the, over a 10 million year period. And so we're very sensitive to these 40 to 50 AU perihelion objects, whereas Shepard and Trujillo are deliberately undersensitive by virtue of their survey design to things between 40 and 50 AU. So they'll pick up some of those objects when they're away from perihelion, when they're at distances greater than 50 AU, but they're unable to detect things when they're at perihelion that have perihelia less than 50 AU um, if they're near perihelion. 
And and if just so that that everyone's on the same page, if the cause of all of these sednoid type objects were by a distant massive planet, you would expect that whether you're at perihelion, whether you're not at perihelion, whether your perihelion is between 40 and 50 AU or whether it's more than 50 AU, if they were all caused by the same object, then you would expect that when you put all of them together, they would all exhibit correlated orbital parameters that would be consistent with the same type of object, wouldn't you? Yeah, so it's, it, I mean, this, just the survey design alone means that, you know, directly comparing what we have from Ossus to what we, what Trujillo and Shepard have discovered, you know, you do have to go through that with a fine tooth comb to be careful how you're doing it. And one of the um, the prediction that uh, um, Brown and Badigan made in 2016 was the existence of a distant planet would lead to a particular sort of orbital clustering. So the the shepherd, the shepherding of the gravitational shepherding of the planet would lead to a physical clustering of orbits in space. So when you look at where the orbits are distributed, that's the kind of thing that you can test when you know what the biases were that go into detecting them. So Shepard and Trujillo have been trying to, do, to look at that question with their sample. Um, Batigan and Brown have been uh, looking at that with the combined set of samples from different surveys. Uh, we looked at it with OSSIS. And, and the, the thing with the R9 was the first question that you have to say, okay, if the prediction is for a clustering, what does what does your data show you? And the, and the first null case when doing that is saying, can you reject that the data are consistent with a disk of objects that are spread out everywhere, that are uniformly distributed? And so we tested our data, our nine objects against that, and we couldn't reject the, the just the null case of them being uniformly distributed with the data that we have. Now, now this that's is not nine, the same nine objects is a very small number of objects, so rejecting... Well, it, it's it, a, uh, more than double, like, that's more than the sample that was made for the original hypothesis. Well, that's that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> because with the original <laughs> I mean, hypothesis, they claimed that the odds of random clustering were somewhere on the order of 1 in 10,000. Right, and all those objects, uh, um, almost all of those objects were from uh, different discrete surveys as well. But what? but what I'm saying is, this is not the same thing as rejecting the planet with the data set, right? All we can say is, our data can't reject just the hypothesis that everything spread out smoothly. And it's not so simple as saying, you know, oh, well, let's just combine the OSOS data with the data from all these other surveys and let's see what the null hypothesis looks like now because of the importance of quantifying what are the different biases that went into the surveys, which, as I understand it, is something you would need to do to responsibly combine data from disparate surveys. Yeah, this is a really challenging problem. And I think, like, it's great. There are people out there with telescopes who are trying to make more discoveries. You know, OSIS is now completed. This is our data set. We're, we're done. It's published. <laughs> but, you know, there are more surveys ongoing to try and find more of these objects and distinguish between the hypotheses. Because there are a number of ways of making these extreme trans-Neptunian orbits. Uh, I have one that I'm quite fond of uh, where you diffuse the orbits over... T um, tens and hundreds of millions of years under the tide of the galaxy itself and 
moves the shape of the orbits around that way to populate the extreme TNOs. Some people are working on stellar flyby models. There's ideas of if you account for the fact that there was meh, on the order of 1,000 to 10,000 dwarf planets in the early trans-Neptunian solar system, how does that affect how the disk changes and evolves over time? Do you make the detached disk that way? I mean, like, this is a great place to be. We have a fun problem. We have a threads of evidence that are starting to come together. And there's, there's going to be a lot of progress made on this in the next few years. That's, that's really fascinating. And so let me ask you, when you talk about this progress that's going to be made, um, if we want to better understand what's going on beyond what we've currently seen, beyond what we currently know and speculate, what are both the direct and indirect pieces of evidence that will be most important to gather? The direct pieces of evidence will be finding more trans-Neptunian objects in surveys with well-characterized biases. So there's a survey called uh, the Dark Energy Survey, which um, is going to provide a very useful data set in that, unlike the surveys we've been talking about so far, its target is sky that's well away from the plane of the solar system. So it does high inclination orbits as its specialty. And this survey has been looking at about 5,000 square degrees of the southern hemisphere sky. So it's a nice big area. It's well away from the ecliptic. It's a very different set of orbits that it can potentially find. And so I think one of the predictions that you have from the existence of a distant planet in the solar system, uh, a distant massive planet, is that you would populate a lot of high inclination trans-Neptunian objects. They would be refreshed and recycled through this region a lot. So you would, you know, they would be quite numerous. But these are also potentially quite distant things. So I think the discoveries that um, will come out of DES are going to be very interesting for seeing if that prediction is something that, that holds up to the number of discoveries they make. So it seems like, as, as is the case with most controversies or interesting observations, that the key to really understanding what's going on out there is more and better data. And in this case, that means increased sky coverage, greater magnitude depth, and repeat observations that allow us to robustly determine what the orbital shape of these highly eccentric trans-Neptunian objects are actually doing absolutely and there's you know there's a telescope coming online which will actually do 18,000 square degrees of sky at least which is called the large synoptic survey telescope and in about three and a half or so years that will start scanning all that area of the southern hemisphere sky to almost as deep as we surveyed with osses and it'll be looking at all that sky about every three nights so that's going to give us about, well, let's see, we're at about not quite 3,000 trans-Neptunian objects currently known. There's going to be 40,000 known. And this is, this is a survey that's, just to be clear for everyone, this is going to cover more than 100 times the area that OSOS covered. And in OSOS, you said you discovered nine objects of interest. Mm -hmm. So you're realistically looking at, you know, perhaps getting close to a thousand objects well, of interest. Yeah, we did, we, did a, we did 155 square degrees and they're doing 18,000. So I am very much looking forward to, see, <laughs> to seeing what they get. <laughs> And again, when you're doing it with one telescope in one location, um, that 
that helps you not eliminate your bias, but it helps you understand what your biases actually are. Yeah, and one of the things is going to be one of you know one of the big work efforts for LSST is doing things like survey simulators and understanding what its uh, uh, particular discovery setups and the software that's going to do the discovery of object and the images, how that's going to play out. You know, this is something that uh, the solar system community are working on very actively and something we'll definitely be planning to have ready to go when the telescope takes first light and images start coming in. It's going to be a fire hose. <laughs> awesome. And so it seems like we've got four real strong candidates for what could have created this population of objects. There could be a large planet out there. There could be a planet nine. There could be, you know, these early large populations, large numbers of these massive dwarf planets that created these, and now many of them are no longer present. It could be the flying by of an object like a rogue planet, orphan planet, or a star that comes into close enough to our solar system to perturb these objects, or, as your favorite idea, it could be galactic tides that are sort of perturbing these objects and causing them to go on these orbits, or some combination of all of them. Yeah, I mean, some of these are effects that are going to take place in the solar system uh, regardless, like the tide of the galaxy exists, you know, regardless of how many... Uh, current giant planets we have in the solar system. The, uh, so in that sense, this, the emplacement of the scattering disk and then um, the lifting out of the semi-major axes and then uh, isolating them by diffusion, snapping them off the, the galactic tide, that can take place in, you know, to some degree without it. Whether the planet would dominate that, well, it, if you have a planet there, a planet is a pretty dominant thing. But... Some of these, like some of these things, can work in combination, and the universe is very good at never giving us straightforward situations. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, last thing, and this is asking you for total speculation: Is Planet Nine real, and what will be the um, what will be the data that will definitively point to you know? even absent a direct detection of it, what will be the data that we will need to know scientifically whether this is an extremely likely hypothesis or whether this is just a hope that people have? I think like this is something LSST can very solidly answer for us. Is when you have uh, scenarios that model the outcome of the, the spread and, and splay of transneptunian objects on these very large orbits, how they're, how they're spread out in space as an outcome of particular planets' uh, sizes, masses, orbits. Uh, that gives you a prediction rate, and that's something you can directly test against the discovered orbits. And so LSST will give us a much, much larger set of orbits, and then you can directly test that against the models. And, I mean, this is, this is how all of science works, is you have predictions, you test them against observations, you refine the predictions, <laughs> and it's the circle of life of, of progressing hypotheses and, until we understand further what the formation and evolution of the solar system really was. 
That's that's really wonderful. You know, I think it's important to remember and thank you for reminding us that the paper that got a whole lot of buzz by Badigan and Brown a couple of years ago was based only on six objects. And since then, we've upped that total number from Osos and other studies combined to maybe around 20. And it's very split with a selection of the objects very much supporting the Planet Nine idea and another slew of observations, mostly from the OSO study that you were part of, saying, actually, this looks like null hypothesis. This looks completely random as far as our data indicates. But when we get up to hundreds or thousands of these objects and we start to remove some of the biases that are inherent to these smaller surveys, it seems like that's going to be what reveals what the universe and our solar system in particular is actually looking like. Yeah, I mean, the field, in some ways, the field of small body of solar system studies, we have been here before, though none of the people currently working in it were alive when that was happening. We were in the sense of we were at the situation where there used to only be like tens, uh, fewer than tens of asteroids known. You know, the, the idea of there being many asteroids was a pretty amazing thing. And, you know, now we know of, oh, what are we up to? 800,000. <laughs> right? And we can see all this vast degree of population detail and collisional families and the way it's shaped by Jupiter's gravitational influence and the way things move out from populations and migrate into being uh, near-Earth asteroids and the way it changes over time. And, like, you just get this explosion of a field when you have a, a whole bunch more objects. And I, th I think that's where we're going to be. We're going to be able to put some real constraints on the formation and evolution, the, the history of our own solar system. So if we're looking ahead, uh, the LSST is scheduled to come online, as I understand it, in 2022, which means by 2025 or so, uh, we should have plenty of data and plenty of these objects where where we can draw such a conclusion so yeah well three, I, th I think three years is uh, three years is a good time to be able to constrain the orbits of these things because they're so distant and the orbits are so elongated so eccentric um, on such se large semi-major axes that you have to wait for the earth to go around the sun a few times to constrain what the shapes of the orbits really are so and then if you get that data then you should either know whether actually it looks like Planet Nine is totally disfavored or it looks like Planet Nine is spot on and here's where you should look for it. I'll be the first to be delighted if it turns up. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Michelle, for a wonderful discussion, some incredibly informative information, and putting the speculation about Planet Nine in context with the full suite of what we know and what we're starting to know. Michelle, how can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your work? Uh, I have my university website, and you can always hear me chatter about the universe at, on Twitter at AstroKiwi. And we'll be putting links in the podcast uh, for everyone to check that out. All right. I'd like to thank everyone for making this happen. The Starts With a Bang podcast is made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above for making this happen. Thanks go to... Robert J. Hansen, Samir Kumar, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Pavel Zuzelski, Chris Shaw, Thomas Sola, Denier, 
Frank, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Laird WH, Daniel Nadasi, Eric Brown, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Frederick Martello, Sean Foley, Elver Sena Sosa, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafal Wojciech, Danny, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Andrew Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Andrew Jason, Charles Buchanan, Mark Langston, David Krumpotic, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Fletch, Ahmed Lee Comsey, Jeffrey Kidd, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Nick Delroy, Ronan Yekazel, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Patrick Dennis, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Joe McFarland, Amir Sosnick, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Radulovic, John Seal, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, Zarko Opatchik. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang. <laughs>